This is where the industry insiders come to play. The download on the download, movers and shakers off the course, and the pros inside the ropes. Welcome to Slice with Brian Bushlack. Well, for those of you who have always played with the pin in, this is your show. <laughs> Welcome. We'll have Top Golf Chairman Eric Anderson with us on this download. Uh, coming up, Cutter and Buck CEO Joel Freak next week. Billy Harmon will share his story. Uh, this podcast, all about the industry, the people, will mix in destinations and all the stuff in golf. One thing, though, I will never, ever do is attempt to analyze those who play the game for a living. Okay, there's plenty of guys out there way more qualified than I am. You got Brandel at Golf Channel, many others out there who obviously know their stuff way better than I do. What I will offer here is an opinion on this medium. It is the Wild West right now. The podcasting thing has really taken off, and it's interesting right now. You've got a lot of different options out there. Uh, we're seeing writers get into it, some of them better than others with a microphone, right? Uh, guys who have never been in media, now podcasting. I think it's great for the game. It's it's nice to have different opinions and fresh ideas, that's cool. But I think the biggest mistake guys make on air, whether it's podcasting, TV, whatever, is trying to be something they're not. Okay, some guys way better at social media than I am, and that's cool. This show isn't about me. It's about you. It's about what you want to hear, who you want to hear, and sharing the stories of the people in and around the game. Here's the deal. I'm 50, married with kids, running a business. On top of that, I live in the Seattle area, so I'm lucky to do anything outside six months out of the year. So I do get to travel. You know, we play amazing golf courses. We're at Reynolds Lake Oconee in a couple weeks, name dropping there. But I'd love to tell you I'm a single digit, but I'm not. But I love the game. Love it. For me, a round of golf is like life in a nutshell. Great shots, shanks, disaster, <laughs> triumph, overcoming all those obstacles and everything that keeps you coming back, right? So if you love the game as much as I do, the history, the players, past and present, the gear, a lot of cool stuff out there, the never-ending quest to get better and most of all, the enjoyment. This is your show. We'll talk to the caddies, the CEOs, the stories maybe you haven't heard or you or you maybe heard a different twist on a story. I'm sure we're going to talk to a few players. And yes, we will have analysis here from people who are qualified to do it. Now, this show is all about stories. And in this episode, we welcome a man who has helped revolutionize the golf experience in America and attract thousands, if not millions of people to the game. And I will say this, honestly, on the surface, Topgolf chairman Eric Anderson, he's the last guy you'd label a golf visionary. Brilliant, 
but there was no golf DNA in his Petri dish. Like me, he grew up in the rural Pacific Northwest. I mean, golf courses and country clubs were places we partied on Friday nights, or at least I did. I'm sure Eric was probably studying on Friday night because he saw something few others did. So he is a visionary without the golf DNA, which I think is even more impressive. But before we talk about Top Golf and that phenomenon, I wanted to get his backstory. Hey, Eric, thanks for joining us. Uh, first off, tell us, what was it like growing up outside Spokane? Well, for me, it was great. It was pretty idyllic. I grew up on three and a half acres with a little Spokane River running in front of my house with some, with some good friends. So I really liked it growing up and then got to go to Mead High School and had, had a really great experience there. So we had fishing and we could float down the river in inner tubes. I even hit some golf balls in the pasture. <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I, I I had the one point in time, I think I told someone I'd be the first person to Mars. I, I didn't get there. Elon <laughs> Musk beat me that. But, you know, I, I did really get involved with leadership, and I had a reason to look back at my uh, college application the other day. Someone brought that to my attention from Claremont, and I kind of focused on being a leader in some fashion and giving back. So that, that, that's where it was. You know, growing up in a small town or around a small town, uh, who inspired you the most? Who introduced you to the world, I guess, outside of Spokane? Well, I was really fortunate with my mom and dad. Both of them had had gone to college. My father was an engineer. My mom was a nurse but grew up you know, as a leader in nursing and actually founded a nursing college. So I had that advantage, uh, which advantage my sister went to college and then moved to California, and she was always a really strong advocate for me understanding things outside of that. And then I had a couple of really nice high school teachers, my math teacher, Mel Griffiths, and some people like that who uh, took an interest in me and would spend some time talking about things outside of that. And my dad just read a lot, so he, he was always giving me the Wall Street Journal, the business thing, or, or we had Scientific American, so we'd... Uh, we talk about some things. So all of those people were really gracious in spending time with me and thinking about things outside the river, I guess we could say. Now, in Northwest terms, I know Spokane's not a small town, but it's uh, certainly a rural area, eastern Washington. I've grown up in a small town as well. And, you know, not a lot of kids in small towns grew up playing golf. Did you? No, I, I really didn't. I grew up playing basketball, although my neighbor, one of my neighbors was in the Spokane Country Club and Scott Smith, and I remember them, and he played a lot of golf, and I always wondered, you know, so there's this thing called the country club, which wasn't my life. I knew about a basketball court, so I got a little introduction to part of that with uh, through them, but in, in general, you know, we might play a little par three at the Pine Acres right there in northern, north of Spokane, and that was, a, that was about it. And then high school, I got a little bit, I got to play a little bit, but it wasn't pretty. <laughs> so when you go off to college, did you know at that point kind of what your focus was going to be, or did you have to find that uh, when you were in school? Uh, that's a really good question. I had uh, determined and had identified at CMC, Claremont McKenna College, that there was a program in economics and engineering, 3-2 program, Claremont and Stanford. And um, just through having spent time with my family and having gone a little campus there. I thought that was it. And the basic view was for me was the world was sort of economic and it was technical. And that seemed like a really good thing. And 
so that's what I did. And so I started day one and I ended that on whatever day 1600 or whatever, five years later. What's your advice to kids these days when it comes to a career? Because I mean, the world has obviously changed a lot in the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years. What's your advice? Well, I think that um, I really believe in looking for opportunity as opposed to answers. Um, so what I would say about that, the world is going to only change faster than what it's been changing. It's changing faster now than ever, and it's just going to accelerate. So building some core skills you know, around communication and math and computer science is really important, of course. But having this idea that there are more opportunities than ever, so always look for the opportunity we teach too much how to look for the answer. We think school, what's the answer to this problem? So I really try to get people to be thinking about the opportunity that comes from change and sort of embrace that. That tends to lead you, I think, to maybe more design courses, some creative courses, as well as things which work on some maybe strong technical skills. So anytime you can create, be involved where you're creating things and looking for opportunity, I would definitely add that a lot into your, into your work. What was your first real job like? I mean, how did it uh, shape your career? I had two. I worked at Sears in the hardware department, Bocan Sears, and then I was part of Parks and Recreation where I looked after young kids in the summer. I think the Sears thing in uh, the hardware, the mighty hardware department, of course, Sears back then was a force, as you might remember, Mm -hmm. or people would. So Sears was a force. First, I remembered that the person who was the manager of the local Sears store gave me an opportunity. So... I really learned that people give people opportunities, and so that really shaped me in terms of how I think about helping other people with opportunities when I can try to give them opportunity. I think the other thing I learned that having prepared in some areas and worked hard and doing work, trying to show up on time and do those things, uh, I got an opportunity to help put in the new smart cash register system that was really rolled out at Sears. They actually sort of took me out of the group and I was a few people they taught me how to teach all, all the folks because I had some, I guess, a little bit of technical aptitude at that time. So I, I think I realized that, you know, having prepared and myself and having learned some things and showing up on time that I got an opportunity. So those were two things that really um, useful for me, what I learned from that. And you talk about opportunity, you get out of college and you go to work for a Dutch firm, had to open your eyes a little bit to the rest of the world, didn't it? Yeah, it sure did. I, I There was, a, again, an example where the people out of this 3-2 program, uh, some of the professors at Claremont and others had some opportunities into firms who liked students who came out of the 3-2 program. And so I was introduced to that and uh, got that opportunity and took it. And when I realized that this was a global company and I was working in the Treasury Department right away and my first meeting, you know, four weeks into the job was in a place called Barbizon, France, which is just outside of Paris. That wasn't a, at a Michelin two-star kind of restaurant, hotel, little complex there. That was uh, that was an eye-opening experience for someone from Spokane, Washington. So global business, understanding how process engineering, which is what this company did, was applied, how you win business around the world. There's a lot of things like that. So that was a big step. And your focus was management consulting. I know this had to be a tremendous advantage for you and being able to go in and see different aspects of different companies and solve problems had to give you a a huge advantage uh, throughout your career, right? Yes. I had two big experiences when when we moved to New York. 
And I did work at Booz Allen, which was a management consulting firm with a big focus on strategy. I didn't go to business school. Everyone at Booz Allen went to business school. So I was able to get direct exposure to Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, Chicago, through all the colleagues. I, I always tell people I was, you know, I sort of got my MBA by osmosis by all the smart people around me at Booz Allen. And yeah, sure, I work strategy. So just looking at, a, you know, looking top down at businesses with really great strategists and getting access to the C-suite really early in in my career through the brand of Booz Allen and the great partners there was so valuable. And I still think fondly of all of them. And then I was able, I also got exposed to investment banking there, Goldman Sachs through that. And that, that really fascinated me. And so I moved on to spend some time at Goldman Sachs in investment banking where I learned a lot about the capital market and again, had more exposure to the C-suite at an early age. And you have interests all over the world, uh, top golf headquarters, uh, in Dallas, but yet you came home effectively to Washington State. What brought you back? Yeah, family. I, I I thought about having spent a decade in New York and really working with two two wonderful brands of Goldman Sachs and Booz Allen, get exposure to that. But I uh, I love my family. I thought it'd be my mom and dad uh, were here. I remember talking to partners at Goldman Sachs, saying I really my mom and dad were a little older parents. They were seventy or something. I didn't want to. Didn't want to miss that part of their life. Then they went and they lived to 99 and 90. So I used to tell them if I'd known that, I might have stayed in New York a couple of years <laughs> longer. But, but back then, you know, that that wasn't a given. So really came back with family to be near my mom and dad and start our own family, that our, you know, the three kids. And that was uh, that was really the, the core of it. Top Golf chairman Eric Anderson. What a success story. He's also into wine and chess, a renaissance man. Other stuff we'll talk about. The top tracer technology we all see on TV. And, you know, even with all the technology out there, there's still human error. I made the mistake of flying the red eye to Orlando for the PGA show. Terrible flight. Oh, couldn't sleep, didn't eat, showed up early. Great to see a lot of people. Cutter and Buck CEO Joel Freed, many others there. Lots of cool stuff. But by 1 o'clock in the afternoon... I was practically hallucinating. The The media food looked like a Vegas buffet from, I don't know, 1975. So no thanks. I was about to curl up in the fetal position when I, I went back in the show and I stumbled into the Bobo's snack stand. And I know some of you know who this is. I'd never heard of Bobo's, but they were handing out free samples like Costco. And I, you know. I didn't care if they tasted like dog treats at that point. I was starving. I think the first one I had was the uh, coconut oat bar. It was kind of embarrassing, but, I mean, I was so hungry, I just helped myself to another one. I think this one was the uh, cranberry orange bar, oat bar. Um, And then they had this toaster pastry thing, like a kind of like a healthy Pop-Tart, except it was organic and gluten-free like, Everything else from Boulder, Colorado. So anyway, Bobo's saved my life that day at the PGA show. This is not a paid endorsement. In fact, I should probably reimburse them for all the samples I ate that day. Uh, Anyway, picked up a few at uh, Safeway here last week. They're in the bag for the trip to Orlando. Uh, Just a friendly tip for you there. And of course, now I see Bobo's everywhere. (laughs) 
He sucks at golf, but he talks a good game. Now, back to Slice with Brian Bushlack. Well, I do suck at golf, but uh, getting back into the swing of things, signed up for some lessons, getting a full assessment, as they called it. So, uh, a little scared, but uh, hopefully improving as we head toward the summer months. Hey, be sure to visit shortpar4.com. Plug in your email, and they'll cover shipping on your first box. I talked with Short Par 4 CEO Bobby DeMeo the other day. Uh, they've got a major, major announcement just a few days away. He's excited to join us here on Slice, and we're excited to have him on the show in the next couple of weeks to talk all about it. So keep your eyes out on Short Par 4. Uh, you know, so much cool stuff out there right now. Obviously, Short Par 4, uh, the experience at Top Golf, pretty cool. All because someone or some group, an entrepreneur, took a chance on an idea. We all enjoy it now, but back then, it was just a crazy idea. Obviously, driving ranges have been around forever, but thanks to Top Golf and that type of experience is now something you can share with your friends and family, your wife and kids, your buddies, whether they play golf or not. It's a lot of fun. And continuing our conversation with Top Golf chairman Eric Anderson, I wanted to learn how he got into the game, who showed him the ropes in business, and most of all, how Top Golf became a reality. Well, I have a really great friend, Tom Mendel, which is probably another great life lesson that you, seems part of your theme here, who is a partner at Goldman Sachs, had really taken an interest you know, in, in my career. You'll see that theme that I've had the good fortune from early ages through high school, college, these jobs were, I really built some wonderful relationship and people were really gracious and generous with their time and interest. And, and Tom was one of those people, very senior partner with Goldman and he brought this idea to me and he was partnered up with Richard Grogan and that's how it came about. And so it was Grogan then that introduced you to Stephen Davids. The Jolliffe brothers. Yeah, the yeah. Jolliffe brothers. And tell me about that. They had this idea and, and of course, Stephen Dave are really wonderful people and good friends now, as you can imagine. We've spent a lot of time together and I just thought it was, I mean, the technology was interesting and then how we could, you know, how it could grow and there's a whole story there, but you know, I was impressed with what they'd done, and of course it was working, which makes a big difference. They were bright, bright people. When you saw it for the first time, did you, were you immediately like, have that, that moment where you're like, this could be huge, or did it take a while for that to develop? When we first saw it, I thought it was kind of a sports bar. It had some, you know, local sports bar feel to it, the ability to replicate, maybe a little bit like Lucky Strike or, you know, some of the bowling concepts at the time, you saw some of those elements. I didn't have the perspective that it would grow where it was. That sort of came on a few years later when I, I guess I got more involved and more and more involved. And we have to remember that when Topgolf started, you know, Facebook didn't exist, social media, the whole, you know, there were just early days in some of all the electronic gaming. So what became really clear was that when we had digitized the game and turned it not into practice, but turned it into a game, uh, and then it became shareable as a social media piece of content. When those things started to converge, then you really started to see what Top Golf could be as a sports entertainment. It's easy now to see how successful this is and popular this is. But I mean, back if you rewind the clock back to that point, did it feel like it was maybe sort of a gamble? I think 
yes, it was it was a gamble. I thought it was a good investment sort of risk return, but it was clearly risky. I clearly had risk to it. There were key elements in terms of how well it done in the UK, you know, how how much there was engagement and things like that that gave you reason to think that you could replicate that. But yes, it was clearly risky. And what was the moment where you I guess you know the cliche, but the aha moment for you with Top Golf, where you you know you went, okay, <laughs> we're on to something here. This is you know this is this is happening. When was that? I think there were probably two. The second one being, I, I think, more of the really big aha moment when. So we built the first four. We had Washington D.C., Chicago, uh, and two in Dallas, and they were sort of they would ramp up. They would keep growing but they didn't grow really fast dallas started a little slow and then it did accelerate so that was a idea that that was something we built one more in allen which sort of had some was a little bit of a new design but then we built the, the fifth one we built was in houston and we that we really did redesign it's pretty close to what we call our gen 2 now we did a lot of new things to it and we had a projection that we thought it would do, I don't know, say 12, you know, some number. And when it opened up, it opened up doing twice that number. We had lines out the door. We had to add food. We had, we'd built a big kitchen and we still had to add like food trucks and refrigeration in the back. It actually exceeded our expectations by two. So we were running at two X. Uh, we had four or five hour waits and it was like, huh. That's interesting, uh, and you know, but it really was a culmination of all the design work and the things we'd learned, and it just had that big step function. And at that point, we really went big, and that's when we really got excited about building the one in Las Vegas too. But that was the point when all of us, I think, our my fellow investors and partners, when we were like, "Yeah, we this is something that's really special now." That's cool. Okay, so uh, you start to see you're onto something, right? And this is entertainment, and this is uh, it's going viral, right? Um, then along comes this Pro Tracer technology. How were you introduced to that? And I mean, you, obviously, you looked at that and thought, "Wow, this is something we can use." Well, hundred percent. So we'd seen it. You know, if you watched a little bit on TV, you saw some of it occasionally, right? It wasn't totally ubiquitous as it is now, of course. And then I met them at, I think, the PGA show, and I got to meet Daniel, the the founder, and they were interested in putting it in our range product, right, you know, the venues and everything. And when we saw it and they set it up, it was like, yeah, this could be really powerful. And then I saw a lot of future for that. All of our partners did. We saw a lot of future, and we thought that in addition with the chips in the ball that the optical capability would be very valuable. So we went very long. That idea it was a very strategic transaction for us. So it was a very small company. We paid in Daniel. We came up with a really good transaction for him and his founders. And, and of course that whole team is with us today and they're so excited as we roll it out in all of the venues. And of course we're, we're using it now top tracer range where we put it all over the world to, the driving ranges, and then, of course, we cover almost all of the golf in the world now, so you can't really imagine watching golf without having that technology with us. No doubt about it. I mean, did you immediately envision what that technology would do for the sport, and particularly televised golf? I mean, it's been fascinating. Yeah, we like to be a little humble and enthusiastic, but 
by this point in the development of Top Golf and the vision of what it was as a global sports entertainment and how important it was, how important the user interface is across all sports or all entertainment mediums and how important screens are, whether TV screens, your phones or screens everywhere. I think at, at that point in our development, we had, you know, a pretty good vision of how we would use it and could see the opportunity uh, pretty clearly. So I'll give us a little more credit, be a little more visionary on that one, but we were a long way down. We'd done a lot of thinking, at, you know, at that point in time about how to create a global sort of be one of the global faces of golf and, and capturing people and creating that content and user experience was clearly very valuable. And talk about that more because uh, you transitioned from, you know, already sort of a, a mashup of a golf company with, you know, there is that entertainment element, certainly with the food and the bar and all that kind of stuff. But you really, you know, you're really making a big step with Pro Tracer, which becomes Top Tracer to become really more of an entertainment company, right? Well, we also bought World WGT, World Golf Tour, at the same time, which was the largest digital golf game. You know, continues to do that. So both of those elements became really the way we were going to be in front of or be part of the sport all the time, and then also create a media company and take content and the experience outside of our venues. So those things together really came formed the foundation of that. And it was clear to us then that we had a very large engaged audience. So we're you know we have tens of millions of people who visit, who play WGT, and now who watch our content. We started to create original content, sort of like we were inspired by like Red Bull Media and BAM. So all of those converged together, and uh, we realized we had a very, very large audience, so we wanted to be engaged with them. Our purpose really emerged there, too. We'd always been fun, and that was always at the core. But then we realized we got to this deeper purpose of connecting people in meaningful ways, and people connect by playing games, by sport, by entertainment, by music, by food, by charity. But if you add those four or five key elements together, those are always places where people connect in meaningful ways. And and Topgolf, we built that community and we had our fans who really gave us permission to have that experience with them. So Topgolf becomes this great place of, of connection. And we celebrate that and we focus on that all the time now. And you'll see that when in our charity work programs, our audience really likes that. And again, it's all about bringing people together and then, of course, giving back. And that, that's really the lifeblood of our, our company and then creating these moments that matter. So creation, going back to the very first talk point we had, we don't just serve you or help you. We actually will be involved in creating these moments that matter for you. And so we're, we're leaning forward. So all that came together uh, and those other technologies Top Tracer and WGT and the content and our culture and all of that comes together to, to try to create that special place for people. Top Golf Chairman Eric Anderson and obviously social media coming of age and playing a big role in the exponential growth of the Top Golf brand. You know, there's another Seattle area connection here. Of course, Eric lives in the Seattle area and Cutter and Buck, one of the Top Golf partners, also based in Seattle, right on Elliott Bay. We'll connect with their CEO, Joel Freet, on our next show. And by the way, Joel wanted to pass along an exclusive discount for our Slice listeners. That's you. You can save 20% site-wide at cutterandbuck.com. Just 
Fill up that shopping cart, and when you get to checkout, plug in the coupon code CBLIFE. That's C-B-L-I-F-E, and save 20% on your entire order. Thanks for downloading Slice with Brian Bushlack, where the industry insiders talk shop. Back with Top Golf Chairman Eric Anderson, and the irony here is he lives in the Seattle area. But get this, there's no Top Golf in Seattle, at least as of now. It's about to change. Plans in the works for two Top Golf locations, one in Renton, the other in Tacoma. Boy, they need about 10 Top Golfs in Seattle to satisfy the demand with all the rain. Eric, obviously busy innovating and transforming the game of golf and we appreciate him taking time to share the Top Golf story, but he has other interests. One being the board game he enjoyed as a kid. Well, I grew up playing chess north of Spokane, so maybe in Spokane. So maybe the only thing that people played less than golf was chess. <laughs> but it was the Bobby Fischer era, right? So uh, uh-huh. that was a, a big thing. One of my best friends and I, you know, played chess um, and liked it. I even got involved in the Spokane Chess Club. Uh, as well, and learned that people in Eastern Europe, Peter Torkar was really good, and I wasn't. <laughs> but I got better, so that had a, I had a great um, had a great point in my life, and I did learn that chess really did teach you how to think, look ahead. Um, you know, it really becomes about pattern recognition, uh, comes about coordination and orchestration of pieces. It has a lot of good sportsmanship in it. So when I got the opportunity later on in life and, you know, to think about different places to give back, uh, that became, you know, that became an area for me, you know, to give back and created America's Foundation for Chess and First Move. And we've taught over, we've had over a million, you know, young people, second and third graders go through the program. And, but it is really, it, it, it's one of, it's a good skill set, um, you know, and a good way of looking to, to help young people move forward. You got a lot going on. Uh, tell us about One Hope. What's what's going on with that? <laughs> well, One Hope's really exciting. It's uh, if you step up one level again for with Top Golf, what what and look at a pattern. So use our chess analysis here. So a pattern. You know, we create an authentic experience at Top Golf, and golf is you know, we still hit golf balls to target, which is essence of golf in many ways. Um, that creates a sense of community because people come around it and they share, right? They do it together. They share stories. And then we're able to engage people, you know, digitally, which is extend that and keep it alive even when you're not with us physically. And One Hope captures that. And then, of course, we have a great purpose. One Hope for me, where Jake Cloberdance, who put that together and came to us about it, you know, really captures those themes again. He has a great purpose. We have these cause entrepreneurs, um, primarily women who are, you know, with, have a direct sales opportunity, uh, you know, create these wine experiences and drinking wine and coming together around. It's a really authentic experience. Again, it does connect, create community. Um, they get together a, a large part of the wine. Some of the proceeds go to charities, charities, you know, of the cause entrepreneurs choice. And then we, they have a really interesting, you know, digital network that keeps people connected. So the pattern was there and the purpose uh, you know, purpose was there and it was a really authentic experience where we bring wonderful wines to these communities and, and they bring people together 
So those patterns were there again, and that, that company's doing really well, and we're, we're excited about it. But that's, that's how it works. And I'm guessing that's uh, how you got to know Greg and Stacy Lill. Uh, yes. Well, in many ways, uh, Greg and Stacy are great community leaders. So you couldn't go many places in Seattle where people were doing good things and you didn't see Greg and Stacy really, you know, sharing their unbelievably good wines. And they're, of course, they're such gracious hosts um, and, you know, really bring, you know, any anytime they're at an event, you you kind of know they're there and they bring people together. So I, I knew them from that and had always admired certainly admired that and then i got to know a little more and then then of course it, they gave me a lot of good advice about wine and i still looked up to them for for all things wine but both as community leaders and they gave give some insight into how to think about the wine business wonderful people that's top golf chairman eric anderson talking about two of the best people in the wine business greg and stacy lill and by the way we'll feature them on vintage our wine podcast as we kick off Washington Wine Month and travel around the world on the wine trails. Thanks to Eric Anderson for joining us. Thank you for downloading the show. Next up, it's Cutter & Buck CEO Joel Freet, our favorite Harmon brother, don't tell Butch, Billy Harmon. He's on the schedule with us as well. Pete Charleston, who co-founded Golf Logics. Boy, they have got some cool stuff. We'll talk to Pete, Brad Converse, and his insanely cool wood putters. Photographer Channing Benjamin, I spent time with him down in La Quinta. Boy, beautiful golf photography. All of that. We've got short par 4 CEO Bobby DeMeo as well. We'll have their big announcement. Lots to talk about. Plenty of great shows coming up. Add us to your favorites. Thanks for the download. More stories next time on Slice. Thanks for downloading Slice, a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Full disclosure, our legal department doesn't allow mulligans.